This week, trying times for scientists using fetal tissue in their research. They have, in many cases, completely refused to talk to the press about the work going on because they're afraid of lashback from abortion opponents. And images of the Dwarf Planet series reveal some of its secrets. These pictures are crazy, right? When you look at them, it looks like the Death Star, practically. Plus, the muscle-wasting condition that can worsen outcomes for patients with chronic diseases. This is The Nature Podcast for December the 10th, 2015. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. If you listened to the show last week, you'll have heard the solutions to two deep space mysteries. But there are plenty of near-space conundrums too, and plenty of bodies in our own solar system that we don't know anything about. Sharmini Bundell investigates one such enigma. In 2007, a spacecraft called Dawn set out for the largest object in the asteroid belt, a round, rocky dwarf planet called Ceres. In English it's Ceres, in Italian it's Ceres, because it was, was discovered by an Italian astronomer. That's astrophysicist Maria Cristina de Sanctis of the National Institute of Astrophysics in Rome. Whether you pronounce it Ceres or Ceres, scientists have been waiting eagerly to uncover its secrets and find out what it can reveal about the formation of our solar system. This week we see the first of these revelations as two papers from the mission come out in Nature. It's clearly a big week for space nerds, so I called up our resident expert in all things spacey, nature reporter Alexandra Witsey. Alex, it's been a while since we talked about Dawn on the podcast, so I was hoping you could give me a quick recap as to what the Dawn mission's all about. So the Dawn spacecraft is a a NASA mission to explore two worlds in the asteroid belt. Those are those space rocks, of course, between Mars and Jupiter in their orbit. And Dawn first visited one called Vesta a couple of years ago and checked that out. And now this year it's arrived at its second target, Ceres. And Ceres is interesting because it's the biggest asteroid in the asteroid belt. And because it's so big, it might give us a glimpse as to what some of the early solar system processes might have been like. So Dawn has been orbiting Ceres since March, and these two papers that are coming out are the first sort of big, juicy scientific findings um, from what it's found in that orbit around this this big asteroid, this protoplanet Ceres. And we had some of the very first close-up pictures of Ceres months ago, didn't we? But we didn't necessarily know what we were seeing. These pictures are crazy, right? When you look at them, it looks like the Death Star, practically. You've got kind of this dark round thing. And then in a crater, there were these weird bright spots, shiny bits, basically sprinkled kind of all around the surface on Ceres. And that's been kind of an obsession of a lot of people. Like, what are these bright spots? Alex, stay on the line, because that's exactly the question that astronomer Andres Natuez can help us with. He's at the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research, and his team have been using a piece of kit called a framing camera on board Dawn. The camera measures the different wavelengths of light being reflected from the surface. There is a number of possibilities to explain the brightness and the spectral appearance of the orite spots. So what we did is we went into the lab and did reflectance measurements of different kinds of material and compared these spectra with the in-flight spectra. Andres's team had a couple of theories for what the reflective stuff could be, ice or salt. Um, Alex, what makes them think it's one of those two? So you think about frozen ice, it's really reflective, right? If you think about salt, crusty salt around, I don't know, a hot spring or something, that's really white and reflective too. And there's been a big debate going on back and forth for the last couple of months. Is it ice? Is it salt? What the heck is it? And this paper says, hey, it's salt. 
uh, technically what they call these hydrated magnesium sulfates, but it's, it's salt, basically. Finding salt on the surface of Ceres, along with evidence for water that has already been spotted, suggests that Ceres may well have a briny, icy shell beneath its surface. This answers some interesting questions about the internal structure of the asteroid. The white spot composition tells us that the Ceres itself is a differentiated body in, uh, which shows shell structures. Shell structures means that Ceres has a separate core and outer shell of different compositions, which makes it very similar to the protoplanets which started forming in the early days of the solar system. While Andreas and his team were uncovering clues about the inner structure of the asteroid, a second team were looking elsewhere. So that second paper is all about what is the surface of Ceres, so not just the bright spots, but the stuff behind it. And, and they have found uh, what they call ammoniated clays. So that just means there's ammonia in it. And that's surprising because we haven't seen that, for instance, on the other asteroid that Dawn visited, this one called Vesta, a few years ago. Team leader Maria Cristina de Sanctis, who we heard from briefly at the beginning, explains. Ammonia is, a, is a relatively rare in the solar system. It's present only in the, in the outer solar system. We think that uh, the presence of ammonia on Ceres could indicate that uh, Ceres formed farther out or Ceres accreted with material formed in the outer solar system. It's not definitive, but it certainly raises some interesting possibilities about Ceres' origins. And more than that, it gives us an idea of a young solar system very different to what we see today. Instead of the stable elliptical orbits of today's planets and asteroids, the early sun could have been surrounded by a turbulent mixing of material from closer in and further out. Since Dawn sent us the first pictures, we've learnt a lot. But Alex, are we going to expect a lot more of these kind of revelations from knowing nothing about Ceres to knowing all there is to know? How far through are we? Uh, I'd say we're sort of mostly at the beginning. It's really nice to start to get some actual answers to things like what are those mysterious bright spots. Um, but the, the mission is going to keep looping closer and closer to Ceres' surface. So, you know, there's still a lot more to come. One thing I'm really waiting for is this, the instrument that found these ammoniated minerals. It has been looking at those bright spots as well, too. And so one of the big questions people are wondering is, what does the mineralogy of those bright spots say? So we're going to expect plenty more papers to chat about on the Nature Podcast? Yes, yes, I think so. And the first ones are always the most exciting, right? Because you answer the first big questions about it. But I, I think there's going to be lots to learn still. Yeah. And certainly getting back these first results after eight years of waiting has been a big relief for all the scientists involved. Oh, it's really, it's really a great emotion, to be sincere, because you never know what, uh, what to, could happen, if it worked good or not, if uh, everything is fine, if you made some, something wrong in, uh, in the planning of the observation. So, so when, when the data came back, it's really, really amazing. That was Maria Cristina de Sanctis of the National Institute of Astrophysics in Rome. You also heard from Andreas Natwez of the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research and, of course, space super nerd Alexandra Witsi. The two papers can be found at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up later in the show, using fetal tissue in science and a condition called cachexia that worsens outcomes for patients. But before that, it's time for the research highlights. Back in the hot seat, Sharmini Bundell. 
can electric charge disappear? According to the law of conservation of charge, it's not supposed to. But physicists are always on the lookout for broken laws, hoping they'll expand our understanding of the universe. Researchers checked to see if negatively charged electrons can decay into neutral neutrinos and photons. They showed that if this decay happens, it takes at least 60 billion 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 years. That's more than a billion billion times longer than the age of the universe. Looks like electric charge can't just vanish. Check out the full paper in Physical Review Letters. Cuttlefish are masters of camouflage. They can change colour and even texture to merge in with their surroundings. Now, researchers have found they have yet another disguise. When played videos of approaching predators, the cuttlefish went flat against the surface. They also slowed down their breathing and closed their body's openings. This masks the electric field they produce, making them less apparent to hunters like sharks. Electronic hiding, like having your phone set to silent. That study is over in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. For many patients with chronic diseases like cancer or kidney disease, their condition isn't the only threat to their life. They may also find themselves losing dangerous amounts of weight. This condition has a separate name, cachexia. Last week, researchers from around the world gathered for a cachexia conference in Paris, the biggest to date. Egidio Dalfabro, a palliative care physician at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, who is attending the conference, has worked with many patients with cachexia. Whether it's the loss of muscle, the decreased function, increased fatigue, or um, poor appetite, I think it has profound effects. It can make patients frail and less able to withstand therapy. And, even though it affects some 9 million people worldwide, cachexia itself can often go untreated, even unacknowledged by physicians. Additionally, of course, there does appear to be a relationship between weight loss, cachexia and um, survival, but also uh, side effects of chemotherapy agents. There are several studies now that show that if you have lost weight, um, that you have a higher risk of chemotherapy-related side effects. In healthy people, body weight is kept constant by a balance between processes that build and degrade tissue. But chronic diseases can throw these processes out of sync. Here's Stefan Anker, a cachexia specialist at University Medical Center Göttingen, Germany. When this uh, balance that we have, which keeps our body weight stable over time, if this balance is basically given up, then it results in a loss of tissue, uh, muscle tissue, fat tissue, and this loss of tissue in the end leads to weight loss and uh, to a gross disease status that, that can be really characterized as cachexia. But recognizing the processes that lead to cachexia doesn't necessarily make it easy to treat, Del Fabro says. They've not been really very effective drugs um, that reverse this problem. And the drugs that are out there that have been around for decades now are um, associated with tremendous side effects, including you know, uh, increased risk of infection, potentially decreased survival, and, and so on. So I think physicians have felt that they haven't had the um, tools available. 
In recent years, though, it seems like the situation might finally be changing. Several drugs are undergoing trials. Although results have so far been mixed, Stefan hopes it will only be a matter of time before effective drugs reach the market. It's a game of numbers. Uh, the more often you try, uh, I, I'm sure the higher the chances that you will win. This is not an untreatable disease, but I'm very optimistic for sure that in the near-term future we will have several such drugs available. But cachexia patients can't keep waiting for drugs to hit the market. Egidio Del Fabro worries that many doctors don't engage with the cachexia because they can't prescribe a drug. But there's plenty more care they could offer instead. So advising patients to increase their calories, to change the foods. The other uh, important aspect is treating these other symptoms that can also decrease one's appetite. The, I think these symptoms are treatable and they're treatable with readily available fairly inexpensive medications. But often, the condition slips down physicians' priority lists when treating patients with chronic diseases. It is fairly frustrating at times when you've seen perhaps a missed opportunity because I think the earlier we engage patients, the earlier we intervene, the more likely we are to be able to impact um, the clinical course and to improve outcomes. And the effects on patients' quality of life when interventions are made can be incredibly valuable. Egidio remembers one particular cancer patient. Although her cancer would eventually spread further, treating her cachexia greatly improved her quality of life. She had uh, metastatic cancer to her lungs, um, bones, and was in, uh, had tremendous um, pain. Um, and once we started treating these symptoms that exacerbated her poor appetite, um, we were able to initiate dietary counselling. And furthermore, we were able to start her on an exercise program. And it was, it was just incredible that this, um, this patient really had improved function, improved quality of life. Clearly, during this six-month period, we were able to intervene um, and, and make uh, a, a tremendous difference. That was Algidio Del Fabro, and before him, Stefan Anker. There's a feature on Cachexia in this week's Nature. Find it at nature.com forward slash news. And if you want more information on the Cachexia conference that just took place, head to cachexia.org. There's an organisation in the US called Planned Parenthood. It's a healthcare provider focusing on sexual and reproductive health, cancer screenings, tests for sexually transmitted diseases, birth control, things like that. A small part of what it does is provide abortions. And in a small proportion of those procedures, it provides tissue from the foetuses to researchers studying development and disease. Back in the summer, Planned Parenthood was at the centre of a political firestorm. Planned Parenthood doctors were filmed undercover by an anti-abortion group called the Centre for Medical Progress. They were talking about harvesting fetal organs. The sound quality of the video is too poor to play you a clip, but the storm started because the Planned Parenthood official discussed the methods they use to extract fetal organs intact and the money associated with providing specimens, all in a rather dispassionate way. To be clear, it's actually illegal to sell body parts, and they only recover their costs. Whatever the motives of the undercover film, it has drawn attention to how scientists use fetal tissue. And in a feature this week, freelance medical writer Meredith Wadman explores some of those projects. Here's Meredith. There are several categories of research in which the tissue is used particularly. The 
first being uh, developmental biology, studying the earliest stages of human development, both what happens normally and what goes wrong in some conditions. Another important category is for research in infectious diseases and within that particularly in HIV AIDS. Why is it necessary to have fetal tissue to do these projects? A lot of them make use of humanized mice, mice whose immune systems as newborns are ablated and then replaced with stem cells from human fetal liver and commonly uh, blood-forming human fetal stem cells, creating a mouse with essentially a humanized immune system, which one can then use to study antibody responses, work iteratively on, on developing vaccines, that kind of thing. Fetal cells, they're far more adaptive and able to settle into new environments, making them really useful in medical research. Now, this tissue, of course, is precious. It's not very widely available. How do researchers who work with it get hold of it, uh, particularly in the U.S.? Commonly, they will obtain it from companies that are biosupply companies, but the companies have obtained it from abortion clinics or hospitals where abortions are performed. And obviously, this link that it does have with abortion gives it this political hot potato nature in the U.S. at the moment. People who work with this tissue, have they been affected by the politicised nature of this overall topic? The politicisation came about in July when covertly filmed videos of Planned Parenthood officials bluntly discussing how they harvested fetal tissue from abortions for research were released by a group called the Centre for Medical Progress and instituted a, a basically a political firestorm. Prior to that, it was operating without a great deal of attention and so on. Since that time in July, this is when scientists and their institutions who use fetal tissue research in research have been feeling the heat. They have, in many cases, completely refused to talk to the press about the work going on because they're afraid of of lashback from abortion opponents. And indeed, there was a, a shooting at a Planned Parenthood clinic just several days ago in late November in which three people were killed. And the gunman was in an interview with police afterwards, was heard to say, no more baby parts. So the, the atmosphere here is extremely tense. Is this really about the use of tissue in research, though, or is there something else broader at work here? It's focused to a degree on the fetal tissue, but the underlying real issue is the access and availability of legal abortion in this country, which opponents want to shut down. And fetal tissue is a way of getting at that. Planned Parenthood, by the way, collects upwards of $500 million from the government annually. This is to reimburse it for a huge range of services it supplies, things like contraceptive counseling. A small fraction of what they do is actual provision of abortions. I believe it's 3% of, of the services they provide. Planned Parenthood is a major abortion provider, but far from the only one. There are many clinics and hospitals throughout the country that provide abortions. Planned Parenthood, though, is a visible symbol of women's access to that, and I think it made a convenient target for the anti-abortion forces that made those videos because of that. So Planned Parenthood were filmed talking about fetal tissue, but they weren't doing anything illegal in providing it for research, and they didn't take any money for it over and above costs. And scientists using fetal tissue do also get federal funding, we should say. 
So where next from here after the videos in the summer and the tragic shooting just just a week or so ago? You know, I don't see an immediate flashpoint. There had been looking to be one on December 11th when conservative Republicans in the House of Representatives had vowed to shut down the government unless Planned Parenthood funding was stripped from funding going forward. However, this tragic shooting, I believe, has shifted the political calculus in the House of Representatives. And in fact, on Monday, Kevin McCarthy, the majority leader who sets the House agenda, made it clear that they're, that the Republicans are not going to go to bat to get rid of Planned Parenthood funding in this go-round. Now, after an election that returns a Republican president, if that happened in 2016, I think then all bets are off. That was Meredith Wadman, author of the feature The Truth About Fetal Tissue Research. Meredith is also an editorial fellow at New America, a think tank in Washington, D.C., and she's writing a book about a fetal cell line. Time now for the news chat, and we throw it over once again to Noah Baker and Jeff Tollefson at the Paris Climate Talks. Hello and welcome to COP21, the Paris Climate Talks. Jeff and I have been here for nine days now, and with the beginning of the second week comes the official opening of Paris COP. That's right, Noam. The second week is when the bureaucrats, who are professional negotiators, officially pass the text over to their bosses, the government ministers. When that happens, that's the, uh, that's the official beginning of the COP for this year, and now we get to see what the ministers are going to do. And all eyes are on this agreement, this draft document, which is the ultimate goal of the conference here in Paris. That's right. At the time that we're recording this, we're currently on our second major draft. It came out Saturday. It's now Tuesday. And as far as we can tell, all the trains are running on time, which is a remarkable surprise. The next draft is expected to be out by the time you listen to this. And what kind of things are we expecting to see in that draft, do we know? Well, it's not really clear. Everybody's hoping that, uh, that, that the negotiators will have resolved more of the major issues. A lot of the, the minor text and some important text has already been worked out. Some of the articles of this agreement are clean, some of the minor articles. Uh, the question is what's going to happen on some of the big issues, like finance and mitigation and the long-term goal. These are the controversial issues that people have been debating for the past, well, you could say 25 years. And things have been going very smoothly so far at COP. Are we expecting these big issues to be worked out on time by the end of the conference? Well, if you'd asked me that question earlier, yesterday, a week ago, a month ago, I would have certainly said no. There were rumors floating around that ministers were told not to book their tickets until Wednesday, which would be five days late. Uh, The traditional understanding of these things is that they will always run one day late, two days late. And given the significance of what people are hoping to accomplish here, that was the assumption going in. But as I said, the process is running smoothly so far. We do hear some of the similar rhetoric all the issues are the same. Developing countries are complaining that, that the developed countries are not, uh, are not stepping up with enough finance. Developed countries are saying that developing countries need to step up, put their commitments down on paper, deliver the data, 
and, and begin to abide by some of the same rules and procedures that the developed countries themselves have to abide by today. So if you were a betting man, Jeff Tollefson, would you bet on this agreement being reached by the end of the conference? We journalists, we actually have a poll going on right now. You have to put in five euros and the winner takes all. Um, I actually haven't decided what I'm going to do there. I was planning to put it in around Sunday evening, uh, but at this point, with each passing moment, I'm moving the hour forward. Well, I suppose we'll have to wait and find out whether or not you do win there. Maybe I'll get in on that pool myself. Tune in next week for a final wrap-up where hopefully some of these questions will be answered. But for now, it's bye from us and bye from Paris. We'll have more news coming out of the Paris Climate Talks as they come to a conclusion over the next few days. Noah's been busy making films about the COP meeting, so head on over to youtube.com forward slash nature video channel for even more insight into the climate conference. And, in case you missed it, or as a quick refresher, check out our three videos on the meeting and the basis for the two-degree target. Nature has pulled together all its coverage of the talks at parisclimatetalks2015.tumblr.com. We've got one more bumper show for you next week before we take a short break for the holidays. But fear not, it's going to be a good one, with seasonal cheer, board games, scientific myths, and lots more. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Adam Levy.